0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, November 22nd. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. This time out, Mercedes brings us details on her interview with Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister, including a discussion surrounding what the Ukrainian people need right now from their Western allies.
1: Next, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau expected to testify this week at the Emergencies Act inquiry. We speak with Professor Michael Kempka from the Department of Criminology at
0: the University of Ottawa for the latest on the inquiry now into its final week. According to a new survey, 70% of millennials say they may never be able to retire comfortably. We get details on the survey from Julie Petrera, senior strategist from Edward Jones, Canada.
1: And finally, bars in Calgary have been given the green light to serve breakfast booze for World Cup Week. We catch up with Ernie Sue, president of the Alberta Hospitality Association, to see what sort of an impact the move will have on the hard-hit hospitality industry on this week's episode of the West Block. Host and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson sat down with Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister. They talked about what life is like right now for the people of Ukraine and how this situation may and hopefully will soon come to an end. Mercedes joins us now to talk about the conversation. Hello Mercedes thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. What was that conversation like? Must have been a little bit bittersweet to hear about the plight of the people who are living in that country.
2: Yeah, you know, just incredible to hear from someone who'd just come out of that war zone um, and who's so incredibly composed and brave and articulate and clear-eyed um, about what she wants for her country. Um, and uh, she's um, this just incredible force, like so many of the Ukrainians who I met uh, when I was on the ground there. What, what struck me was the stoicism uh, at the same time, the the kindness that we would experience that we people consistently trying to feed us. We're in the middle of a war zone, uh, and they would be trying to share their food, and we were fine. We had we had lots, but the sort of like concern for others, the concern for their fellow Ukrainians. Um, there there weren't, you know, why is this happening? There was outrage and anger, but a willingness to fight. Um, and I think it's just been incredible to watch that fighting spirit. Um, and the Deputy Prime Minister certainly embodied all of that. She was saying, look, uh, we we are willing to fight more. We want to fight more. We will fight for every last inch of territory. What we need from the West is weapons. What we need from the West uh, is awareness of of what is happening. She she described it so powerfully, I thought, as we've become used to living in the dark. Uh, And that's not just a, a sort of metaphoric reference to living in the dark of having Russia attack your country, but living in the dark in that they have had their electricity and their heat and their power all knocked out over and over again by these attacks on infrastructure stations with missiles uh, being used by the Russians. And these are attacks on civilians because Ukraine is like Canada. It's cold in the winter. I was there in March, and I was absolutely freezing. You knock out heat and power and you could be talking about people's lives um and this is something that experts and ukrainians are telling us that they expect to see a lot more of going forward that this is going to be weaponized against mm-hmm. the ukrainian people and it's not a surprise in the sense that we have consistently, consistently seen uh, the russians indiscriminately targeting civilians with missiles but they will also start targeting their chances at survival by trying to make sure that they are cold, that they are hungry, that they don't have ways uh, you know, to power their hospitals, to power their community centers where people are hiding, um, and it's a very sobering thought because it, it, as we look outside here and it's cold, and I turned my heat up yesterday, I certainly thought about that. You know, there there are people who simply cannot go and turn their heat up in Ukraine, who have done that for many years, who have lived in this, uh, you know, very. Um, put together country and suddenly they are being thrown into complete disarray uh, on top of the war that they've had to deal with for so long and how horrific that's been. There's certainly no strangers to adversity. Um, there is now the question about how do you survive in the middle of winter and in particular for a lot of elderly people there who are by themselves, their families are fighting, their families have been killed. Um, trying to survive something like a very cold winter is a significant threat to their lives potentially
0: and mercedes over the past many many months we've done it as what we can as canadians sending you know a military support sending weaponry but as the dynamics change and this is like you say weaponizing the weather what can canada do to support ukraine
2: well at this point they are still asking for for more weapons uh for warm weather goods to be pardon me warm weather <laughs> cold weather equipment to be sent, pardon me, um, because that's obviously a significant concern. Um, you know, it's, it's tough for us to really fix an energy grid when it goes down, so they are aware that they're going to have to keep repairing this, but uh, perhaps some of the tools or some of the components to repair that are things that Western countries might have access to, and they continue, and, and were very straightforward with me with saying close the airspace, give us more air defenses. If we can knock those missiles down, then we can prevent some of them from landing. That is something they will continue to ask NATO for. NATO countries continue to be somewhat uh, reticent to do that because they're worried about escalating the conflict. Uh, They will, you know, not provide direct air closure. They're providing sort of tools to the Ukrainians that achieve uh, a modicum of that, but not as much as it could uh, because they are worried about a widening war. For the Ukrainians, that is an ongoing source of frustration as, you know the deputy prime minister said to me i know people who are dying all the time i'm seeing it um and so there's a sense of intense frustration with the west on the one hand they appreciate um what's being provided but they're saying you know we we really need a fighting chance and in their opinion what they need is more air defenses and more abilities to close down the skies to uh russian warplanes that could be launching weapons at the ground
1: Mercedes, wanted to uh, switch topics a little bit with you and just talk about what's going on in Ottawa this week. It's week 6 <laughs> been going on forever. Of the Emergencies Act inquiry, what are we expecting this week? I know the PM is supposed to testify, right?
2: Yeah, so yesterday CSIS um, testified, and they testified that, well, the convoy did not meet um, the definition of a threat to national security under the CSIS Act, which, by the way, is important for people to know is a very narrow definition. A lot of things don't meet that. Um, the, you know, top person at ceases David Vigno, the director of the intelligence service, did advise that he thought that the emergencies act should be invoked. So he obviously was uh, about what was going on there according to the testimony that we heard yesterday. We are hearing from political officials, cabinet ministers, and yes, the prime minister, uh, Bill Blair, testifying, Justin Trudeau will testify. We will hear from the people at the cabinet table who ultimately made the decision. And and they're the ones who this whole thing is really about. They're listening uh, and taking the evidence of various intelligence and policing services and what the situation was on the ground. But the people who are accountable for the decision to invoke the military... uh, the Emergencies Act uh, is justin trudeau and his cabinet Um, so we will get to hear their perspective on the threat picture they were seeing and the reason why they made the decision to do this and that by the way is not a surprise Um, when they invoked the emergencies act this is actually written into it it was partially written in uh, because of what happened with the war measures act it was such a draconian tool and it suspended civil rights to such a massive degree that when it was rewritten as the emergencies act uh, which is less draconian but still spends a lot of really significant rights, anybody who would that would have to call a commission like this to look into it and would know that they would have to testify at that commission about why they made the decision they did and be able uh, to defend it not only to the judge who is sitting at, as the head of this commission, but to Canadians who are listening and watching.
0: I wanted to get to this. Uh, It came down last week. I'm not sure how long it's been brewing, but the allegations of Chinese interference in the 2019 federal election is apparently going to be probed by Parliamentary uh, Committee now. However, I was shocked to see uh, earlier this week the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying that, uh, and I quote, let me be clear, I do not have any information nor have I been briefed on any federal candidates receiving any money from China. Could it be possible that uh, that this information did not uh, previously make its way to the Prime Minister's ear, Mercedes?
2: well i mean that's that's what he's saying um we will continue to report on this uh, that the wording that he used was not the exact same wording that was in the global news article where we talked about uh, a clandestine network um and of course we reported that the prime minister and his cabinet were briefed uh, on elements of this. And, and I would really encourage um, your listeners, if you're curious about this, to go to globalnews.ca, read that story in detail. Sam Cooper, who's the person who broke it, has um, put out an update on that. He makes it very clear exactly what we've reported versus what the Prime Minister is saying. Uh, but what we were reporting about was allegations that a, a large sum of money had been transferred into an alleged network um, and that some people were winning um winning um, awareness of a connection uh, to the CCP party in China, and uh, it's it's going to be really interesting to see where this goes. We've got a lot more planned on it, as you can imagine. Um, it's also interesting that we first asked about this uh, over two weeks ago, and there was not a denial until the very end of this trip and, and we were asking about it every single chance we had um, and that was not what the prime minister said consistently both in canada and after he left canada and then he uh, made that particular statement on sunday so obviously we're following up we're also trying to get some clarity uh, from the prime minister when we see him today at cabinet in on what exactly he means by that um so we still have lots of questions that are going forward uh to to see um who was briefed Uh, don't forget that we also reported that a number of cabinet ministers were briefed on this not all of cabinet Uh, so so it sort of has created even more questions than before but especially that time lag in making that kind of a statement um, despite day after day of questions on it
1: I would think Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives are just rubbing their hands together over this one they are, and
2: I'd also point out that some of the questions, the way that they phrase their questions in the same way that right? the way Mr. Trudeau has phrased his questions, um acts- actually it doesn't always match up exactly to what global was reporting <laughs> shockingly politicians use this uh for their own attempts and, and intentions but it's going to be before the proc committee yeah. today um there is a committee that's going to look into this mr trudeau said they are going to release all the information that they have to the committee so it'll be really interesting mm-hmm. uh, to see what that committee is able to find out um, and what we're able to find out
0: yeah. we well, will file that under more to come yeah, thank you no so doubt. much mercedes thank you Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block.
1: We found out this week that CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, despite determining the protests were not a threat to national security, advised Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to invoke the Emergencies Act last winter. Michael Kempka is Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa and joins us now to talk about what we've seen so far at the Emergencies Act inquiry and what we'll see in this final week. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Can you give us a little Coles Notes version of uh, what we've seen so far at the inquiry thus far?
3: We've really seen a story of the collapse of the normal chain of civil institutions. Policing, the police oversight bodies, the interaction with those things with the cities, between cities and the province. It was a disaster, especially in the province of Ontario. Once we get up to the federal level, we're now hearing a lot of argument about whether or not the precise legal thresholds for the invocation of the Emergencies Act were met. Certainly, civil liberties lawyers and lawyers for Freedom Corporation, the the convoy uh, leadership, uh, feel that these thresholds were not met. The government and yesterday, quite shockingly, the thesis has controversially said that indeed the thresholds were met. So it's perhaps a legal decision. For the rest of the week, we'll decide if it was the right decision.
0: And hearing the news about CSIS advising the Prime Minister on the use of the act does contradict their stance that the protests were not a threat to national security. How do you think this will impact Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's anticipated testimony, Professor?
3: So here's the tricky bit. In fact, they're not contradicting their previous statements. CSIS has said, for us, CSIS, we have a very high bar to meet in declaring something or a threat to the security of Canada. The government of Canada must use the same themes as us, but the bar is a little lower. So same themes, a lower bar. So CSIS is saying this is very important, in fact, because if the bar was exactly the same for CSIS and the government, in effect, you would be making CSIS the final deciders of whether or not the invocation of the Merchies Act was a good idea. He's correct, David Vigno, the head of CSIS, is correct to say this is absolutely the opposite of the intention of both the CSIS Act and the Emergencies Act. He's simply saying we look at the same things, but the government is the final decider. This puts the federal government on better legal footing. I'm quite certain that Justice Rouleau, the commissioner for the Public Order Emergencies Commission, will conclude that we've either just crossed that threshold or we're very close to it now, which puts the government on good legal footing. The question though, as I'm saying, is just because something is legal doesn't necessarily mean it's the right decision. We're now gonna dial in and say, what did you do with the Emergencies Act? What were the specific powers you slid in this time to deal with the situation? Did you go too far anywhere? What do we learn to fix everything so that we never end up in this position again?
4: And
1: Professor, you know, as we sort of look towards the end of the inquiry and what might come out of it, what, what does that even look like? I mean, is it is it really just sort of, you know, whether we met the standards of, of putting it into effect, or it, will there be something greater sort of a, as a result of this that, that can help moving forward?
3: Well, within the extreme limits of time the Commission has to finish its work by February of next year, they're going to go much further than just saying Justin Trudeau was right or wrong about inv- evoking the Emergencies Act. They're going to diagnose where the civil chain of institutions broke down, and they're going to make recommendations for how we improve our ordinary powers and our ordinary institutions so that basically we learn to deal with protest and political division in our society in a democratic fashion. We've got to be ready for next time. Because most obviously, we can't be running around invoking the Emergencies Act every time we have a big protest in a society that will certainly be seeing a lot more big protests in the decade to come.
0: Mm -hmm. Fairly in-depth, lots of moving parts of this one. Thanks for your time, Professor. We appreciate it. Thank you kindly. That is Michael Kempa, Associate Professor, Department of Criminology, Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Ottawa. I'm kind of surprised you mentioned it does wrap up this week, but we'll get the uh, results of the inquiry in February. So there's a bit of a waiting game for us. Ahead.
1: And week six, it just seems like it's been going on forever, does like it? week 16, not yeah, week six. It really but, does. So, yeah. yeah, federal cabinet ministers testify this week, more than 65 witnesses already. Um, it's going to be interesting to hear what the prime minister has to say. Yep. Will there be any explosive revelations? I doubt it. But, you know, I don't know. We'll, I mean... Will people be happy at the end of the inquiry? At least we can say we looked into it, I guess, as the federal government would would say.
0: Due diligence has to be complete on this one, for sure. A new study shows that 70% of millennials are not saving enough money for retirement. The biggest obstacle for this group? The cost of living. We're joined this morning by Julie uh, Petrera, of course, Senior Strategist of Client Needs at Edward Jones Canada, to break down other obstacles and find out if there is, in fact, relief in sight for this group. Good morning to you, Julie. Good morning. So, of course, the cost of living high for all Canadians right now, Julie. So why is it impacting millennials more so? Yeah, it seems to be
4: impacting millennials um, and their ability to save for retirement, so uh, possibly. Plus- The possibility is that they're just not prioritizing saving for retirement because compared to other generations, they feel that they're the furthest from retirement. Um, So they're choosing to um, spend money on things that are more immediate than something that they feel is further away, like retirement.
1: So, Julie, what are some of the more significant obstacles then that are getting in the way of millennials saving?
4: Yep, so they're saying that um, debt, they have debt payments that they need to make um, and service. That's the number one thing they've said. Job and employment situation comes in at number two, and then lifestyle at number three.
0: You mentioned their their outlook different, more short term than long term thinking. Is there a chance that this changes up, or is it a case that millennials uh, at this point look like they're going to have to brace just for a later retirement?
4: Yeah, millennials have uh, well, well, all generations have a few choices when it comes to retirement. So. Um, depending on the type of retirement that they want, they can either retire later, they can continue to work in retirement, um, they can curb their, their lifestyle in retirement, or they can save more now. Um, so they have choices to make, and if they choose not to save more now, or they don't save enough between now and retirement, then they'll have to do one of the others, which means delay retirement or continue to work in retirement. Tough times
1: right now. I mean, this is uh, not that it's been easy for other generations, but certainly the way the cost of living is, inflation, all of that, it just has made it so much more difficult for this generation, hasn't it?
4: Absolutely. And they have um, another obstacle as well. We're seeing that, um, you know, there's a decline in employer-sponsored pension plans. So with them not having defined benefit pension plans to rely on, they are required to self-fund their retirement in most cases, So, meaning that they absolutely have to save to support
0: themselves. Julia, I think this is a little off the beaten path, this question, but I think a lot of us think as you get older and you're not a millennial, you might be in your 30s or 40s or maybe even your early 50s, think that it's it's too late to save for retirement. And I know I'm setting you up here for the, for the question of the morning. <laughs> It is never too late, is it, if you sit down with a professional?
4: Absolutely not. It's about, you know, identifying what are your goals. Um, you know, what, when, where, and with whom do you want to retire? What do you want to be doing? What do you want to be outsourcing? And from there, a professional can help you understand, you know, what is that going to cost and what do you need to do between now and then, whenever then is, um, to, to, get you on path, to get you on the right path to get you there. Thanks for the discussion this morning,
1: Julie. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. Julie Petrera is a senior strategist with client needs at Edward Jones Canada, edwardjones.ca. Andy, I think it just, you know, doesn't matter what age you are, what generation you're a part of. We need help in in making sure that we invest what little we have, what large amount we might have for some that do, just to make sure that we have what we need moving
0: forward, at least a helping hand anyway. Yeah, I mean, where are you? Where do you want to be? What are the steps you can take? All, oh, However, like you mentioned, minimal. And what time What time in your life do you start thinking about this? For me, a, a few years right ago. Right now. Whatever right, age
1: you are right at now. 646
0: on a Tuesday. Yes. I, I lost my job a few years ago. Well, I didn't lose it. I know where it is. They just didn't want me to come back. Right. Um, and as a result, I had to look hard at my future and pensions. Mm-hmm. Never thought about pensions until I was yeah. in my 40s and think, whoa, what, boy, I have to be concerned about this. mm mm-hmm. Building a plan. Do you have, you have to go to a fancy, expensive advisor? No, you don't. You have to maybe have a family member or a friend. But, you know, putting it in the hands of somebody who knows more than you, because as we've talked about many times on this program... We got out of high school, and a lot of us don't know anything about investing so, in retirement. So true.
1: And find out, you know, is it a, is it an RRSP? Is it a, you know, is it a GIC? Is it a lira? Is whatever, it a
0: whatever it is. Tax-free savings
1: the account. More, and the earlier you can start, oh, and the better off you is are.
0: real estate the game to be in these days Well, with look the at you. Costs. You're like a financial mogul with your... I'm some kind of a mogul. You are. I'm more like a speed bump, Sue, they've said <laughs> over the years.
1: The time difference from Qatar to Canada means World Cup games are airing as early as 5.30 a.m. for we Albertans. Well, the province has given approval to bars to serve breakfast booze or alcohol early in the morning. Some restaurants, though, are a little worried they may not have the staff for it. Joining us to talk about the entire situation is Ernie Sue, the owner of Trolley 5 Brewery and the president of the Alberta Hospitality Association. Hi again, Ernie. How are you?
5: Yeah, I'm doing well. I hope you guys are well too.
1: For sure. Thanks so much for taking the time. I mean, good news. I'm assuming to to be able to serve early for those who want to get out and watch these games.
5: Yeah, it's it's great news for you know a lot of our local pubs too in the suburban areas that um, you know have had longtime football soccer supporters. So, uh, you know, any of those extra hours that can be utilized are, are, are much needed for sure.
0: All right, your specific business trolley five i am going to be opening up as early as five thirty. <laughs> we're not we're not opening up
5: for uh, all the five thirty games, but we'll be opening up for uh, some of the major ones for sure that we have. Um you know, a lot of reservations for.
1: We've heard about staff shortages. It's been an issue for the past, well, coming out of the pandemic, so maybe a year or so or and even beyond, I guess, through the pandemic itself. Is that a challenge that you're hearing? Is it at Trolley 5 and other places to, to staff for the extended hours and just staff for regular hours? Uh, we've been pretty
5: blessed here. We have a lot of post-secondary athletes working here, so we've been able to work with their schedules. But uh, the industry itself, yeah, has been very short. The Bull Valley area uh Banff Canmore still struggling to get uh you know full time staff out there for sure. Um but, you know, for the most part, um we're seeing a lot of resilient hospitality workers, you know, put in the extra hours uh to to get some of these great locations open for World Cup.
0: Can you didn't give us an idea because I appreciate forty. I call it soccer, I need to be honest with you. I appreciate soccer. I appreciate the sport. I understand how large it is worldwide. But just how much of a crowd comes out for an early game, for example, oh, in Calgary?
5: Get a chance. Follow um, Dorset Pub, which is uh, these guys opened up like just after the pandemic. So get on them. And, and uh, they're an English pub. And right away for the first thing, they're full. So uh, it was great to see those posts on social media. It's great to see, you know, uh, people getting out and supporting their countries.
1: Okay, so, you know, restaurants, the hospitality industry as a whole, Ernie, still recovering. Is it an opportunity to help speed things up? Is this always, you know, I know some people kind of say it's not a good idea to be serving alcohol early, but is it a good thing to be able to do anything to get things moving?
5: Absolutely. Yeah, any chance um, any of the restaurants across the province can utilize these extra hours or, or extra business to, you know, fight back from the last two years of the pandemic, It's much needed for sure.
0: Let's talk about, you know, the pandemic and, uh, you know, moving ahead as far as getting some distance from it. Uh, How, what percentage do you think we can say we are back to to where we were before pandemic? Can you put a percentage on it?
5: Well, we can't put a percentage on it. I mean, we can, we could definitely say that it's great to see the public back out uh, socializing back, you know, the local restaurants, local pubs. Um, It's great to see our live music scene come back Mm -hmm. and be able to support our local musicians so you know on it's a percentage in the live music industry i'd say back to 100 yeah. percent. you know those musicians haven't played for for two solid years so it's, it's great to see our local musicians get back out on the road as well
1: good news all around it sounds like uh we're, we're recuperating we're, we're coming back to it and uh we're grateful for you joining us again ernie thanks
5: yeah thank you very much
1: appreciate it ernie sue owner of trolley five brewery and president of the alberta hospitality association